Why don't you grab your Bibles as well, if you have your Bibles. Kids, if you have a Bible, why don't you grab that and mom and dad maybe can help you find your place. We are in the book of Mark right now. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading verse 1 to 11. Mark chapter 11, 1 to 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark 11. This is God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That was the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we believe in God the Father. We believe in God who made the heavens and earth and all things, and therefore owns all things, is the king of all things, against whom we have sinned. And we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is sent by the Father to save us from our sins. And so we rejoice now, Lord, that we can listen to your word as your children rather than as your enemies because you sent your Son. And we believe in the Holy Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son to give us ears to hear the words of our Father so that we might be turned and pay attention. So Father, we believe these things. We believe in you, the one true God, the three in one. And so in Christ's name we pray that your spirit would open our ears to hear the words of our Savior and to successfully shepherd us in his ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, we are glad you are here. This is the place for you to be. And of course, as you are older, you will understand more and more things. But even when you were young, maybe even if you are a brand new Christian, you will understand the most important things that are said. You can understand and remember the story that Jesus, uh, that, is, that Mark is telling about what happened to Jesus. You remember the story that we just read so much you could even tell your parents afterwards. You remember that Jesus was heading into Jerusalem and he was going there with his disciples. But instead of walking to Jerusalem, he had a plan. He told two of his disciples to go to the village ahead of them between where he was and Jerusalem to find a very young donkey and to bring that donkey back to him so that he could ride the donkey into Jerusalem. And he told the disciples, when you find this donkey, there will be people who will ask you, why are you taking this donkey? And all you're to do is to say that the Lord, Lord means master or king, the Lord needs it it, and he'll bring it back when he's done. And when you tell that to them, they will let you take the donkey. So the disciples went to the village and they found a donkey just like Jesus said they'd find right as they went into the village. And they walked up to the donkey and they started untying it. And people came up to them and said, what are you doing? 
And so they just said the words Jesus told them to say, which was, the Lord, which means master or king, the Lord needs it and he'll bring it right back. And the people let them take the donkey. And so they took the donkey to Jesus. And when Jesus had the donkey there with them, they, it, couldn't, uh, it had no saddle. And so they put their coats on it and they put Jesus on the donkey. And when Jesus got on the donkey, they went into Jerusalem, all the people of Jerusalem, including the boys and girls who had been told the Bible by their parents, they knew that when the Messiah came, he would pick a young donkey who had never been ridden on, and he would ride into Jerusalem on that donkey. And so all the people of Jerusalem, their minds were blown, they were excited. This is the thing that the Bible said would happen, that the king of heaven and earth, the rescue king, Jesus would come and he'd come on a donkey. So everybody rejoiced and celebrated. A huge crowd came and they were rejoicing and they were praising God and they, they wanted to do something. They wanted to say that they loved the Messiah. They were so excited that God had sent his Messiah. And so they wanted like a, a red carpet, a royal carpet for him to ride on and so they just took their jackets off and they threw them on the road so Jesus' donkey could do that but they ran out of jackets so they took branches and palm branches from the fields and they cut them down and they threw them on the ground in front of Jesus. It would have been the most exciting day that any of them had ever experienced in their life. They had been reading for years. They went to synagogue every, uh, every Saturday just like you go to church every Sunday. And they were always told the Messiah is going to come to rescue us. He'll be a king. He'll come to defeat our enemies and rescue us. And when he comes into Jerusalem, he'll come on a, a young donkey. They were excited. Jesus had finally announced to everyone, I am the Messiah. And then when that Parade had finished. Jesus walked into the temple. He walked into the temple. The Old Testament said that this is what he would do. He would walk into the temple and he would check to see if the people were obeying him in the temple. Or maybe the church, the people of God, was disobeying God. He walked into the temple and he saw that they were disobeying him. They weren't listening to his words. They were rejecting God. And then, instead of immediately giving them a punishment, he leaves the temple and he goes back to the village where he came from. That is where our story ends today. Next week, we will read about some pretty intense things that Jesus does when he goes to the temple. But for now, Jesus just looked at the temple and he saw it and he walked away. So, the most important things that we can learn from this, the things that everyone can remember, no matter how young you are, is that Jesus uses every single thing, everything, every single thing, even people who don't love him. He uses everything to save and take care of the church. The second thing is that Jesus coming on a donkey, rather than coming on a war horse, was because he came to take the punishment of the church. He came in to make peace with the church, with people who trusted in him. But this also teaches us that one day Jesus will come on a fighting horse to punish all of his enemies and save the church. This also teaches us that the most happiness that you will ever have is not by being your own king or your own queen, the most happiness that you will ever have is to have Jesus as your king. There's nothing more happy, there's nothing better than to have Jesus as your king, to have him as your boss, to have him as your ruler, to have him as the one who takes care of you and protects you and leads you. And many people in your own heart will tell you it's better to, to be your own boss, but they're lying. Jesus is the only way for us to have happiness, to have him as our king. The last thing, and you can remember this, is that God's anger 
is not like human anger. God does have anger, but it is not the same as human anger, and we need to learn about God's anger so that we do not act sinfully. The first point is this. God's sovereign use of all things bring about his kingdom. God's sovereign use of all things bring about his kingdom. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, but you know who else is headed to Jerusalem that week? The whole country. All of Israel is headed to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover. They're all heading there. Once a year, they had to gather together for the Passover. So everybody's streaming in from all corners of Israel at that time. And Jesus instructs two of his disciples to go ahead and find a donkey for him to ride on, to walk into Jerusalem on a donkey. This demonstrates, his instructions here demonstrates Jesus' omniscience. Omniscience is a fancy word for what? All-knowing. All All-knowing. It's omni means everything, and science means learning things or knowing things, right? Omniscience. Omniscience. Jesus knows everything, and he was showing this to the disciples that he knew everything. How did he do that? Jesus told the disciples what they would find in the next village before they even went there. He says, immediately, as soon as you go into the, into the next village, you will find this. You don't have to go deep into the village. It's not on the outskirts of the village. On the other side of the village, the first thing you will see is you will see a donkey, the way I describe this donkey, tied up outside. It says it's outside. Why is that the case? Well, typically, you're not going to leave one of your animals outside on the street, unprotected outside of the gates of, of your household or um, easily for people to take it because... Why wouldn't you do that? Because two disciples might come and steal it. That's why. So, it's un- so you'll find this thing. It's just sitting there and it's just tied up. It's tied up so that the donkey can't get away but because donkeys don't have opposable thumbs. But if a human walks up with opposable thumbs, they could untie this thing. And so Jesus predicts this is what they're going to see. But Jesus also tells them what will happen after that. People will... Notice that you are untying this donkey that is clearly not yours. Imagine you're the guy's neighbor who owns this thing, and then some stranger comes and starts untying that donkey. They're going to be like, what, what are you doing? Jesus tells them what to say, and he also tells them that that will be enough. That'll be enough to have the neighbors let you take the donkey and ask no further questions. So he tells these things ahead of time. And it worked. What we see here is God's sovereignty isn't dependent on his omniscience. God's sovereignty is not dependent on his omniscience. God is in control of the world, not simply because he knows what's going to happen ahead of time, but because he is the author of history. He is the one who determined before it happens what will happen. He's not only knowledgeable about the future, He's the author of the future. God's sovereignty is not simply one of authority, but of power. You can be somebody who has sovereignty or authority over a situation. That doesn't mean you have control over it. You can be in charge of people who should listen to you, but maybe they don't. God's sovereignty is not like that. When the Bible talks about God being sovereign, it talks about his power. Not only does he have the authority to do things, he also has the power to do these things. Psalm 135 expresses this beautifully. Psalm 135 verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And that psalm goes on to talk about all the other things that God is sovereign over, including nations and people who hate him. What God is displaying through this story through this event is that all things work together for the Lord's purposes. All things work together for the Lord's purposes. 
the owner of the donkey, did not intend for the donkey to be used this way, but it didn't matter. The breeder of that donkey, if it wasn't the owner, didn't intend for this donkey to be used this way. It wasn't his intention to breed a donkey that would one day be used to bring the Messiah into Jerusalem. They didn't need to know the sovereign plan of God in order for it to happen. In order for their own actions to participate or be useful in the coming of Christ. We can see examples from scripture from the the Christmas stories. The decree of Caesar Augustus for all the world to be enrolled. He had no idea and he did not intend for this to fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament that a child conceived and raised in Galilee up north would be born in Bethlehem. He had no idea. He thought he was just being selfish so he could get more taxes. He had no idea that God was actually intending this to fulfill prophecies so there'd be a child conceived in Nazareth and born in Bethlehem. The same is true for the decree of Herod. Herod makes a wicked and terrible decree that all the boys in Bethlehem should be killed, all the baby boys should be killed. He did not intend for this to fulfill prophecies of the Old Testament, that a child conceived and raised in Galilee, born in Bethlehem, would live as a fugitive in Egypt before returning to Israel. But that is exactly what was happening. These men had no intention, no knowledge of how what they would do would be used by God to fulfill his plan, his royal plan. But it didn't matter. God doesn't need people to know or agree with his plans in order for them to come to pass. The disciples really did choose to follow his commands here. And the bystanders really did choose to let these things, let them go with these things. They all had real choices. But the majesty and glory of God is that he is sovereign and people have real choices. It is not one or the other. It's both at the same time. And you think, well, I can't figure out how I would do that if I was God. And to that we could reply, well, then it's a good thing that someone else is God and not you and not me. God doesn't need people to know or agree with his plans in order for his plans to come to pass. For his kingdom to come and his, for his church to be blessed, we can find examples from history, the starting of wars. And the Lord says, the Lord has need of this. This will accomplish his purpose in bringing about his kingdom. The birth of babies whose parents had no intention of bringing forth a baby to help and accomplish the plans of the Lord with his church. The migration of people. The interest and skills and careers that people choose. And the Lord says the Lord has need of this. Diseases. The rising and falling of kings. The rising and falling of wicked philosophies like the sexual revolution or transgenderism or racism or our post-truth society or critical race theory or Marxism. God raises these things up to shame the world's wisdom by giving people over to these godless ideas so that he can show how foolish and destructive it is to follow anything other than Christ. See, God doesn't need permission or compliance to use anything that he has. If the Lord made it, it belongs to him. And he uses these things, everything, as part of the reign of Christ. And he does it for the benefit of the universal church. What do I mean by that? Any single person who's ever trusted in the gospel in the past, in the present, and in the future. He uses all of these things in mysterious ways for the benefit of his church, but also, dear friends, for the benefit of each individual Christian. What things had to happen in order for you to hear the gospel and then believe in the gospel 
and then continue believing in the gospel? What things needed to happen? You know some of them, but you know maybe 0.0000000000000000001% of all of the things that had to happen in order for you to hear the gospel, believe, and continue in the faith. And hallelujah, hallelujah, you don't need to know all the rest. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth, and he knows all of those things. For the conversion, for the care, for the sanctification and the perseverance of each individual Christian, I imagine this would be, have been a great comfort, a sweet comfort to those disciples as they walked into the trap that was Jerusalem that week. Remember, they knew they were walking into a trap when they walked into Jerusalem. They knew that it was hot and that a large group of people wanted to kill the Lord Jesus and all of his disciples. So knowing these things, Jesus showing them these things by just the, the unique things of the story of that donkey would have been a great comfort to these people, knowing that it looked like the world was against them in that moment. And it would have been a, cont- a continued sweet comfort as they, as they, after the death and resurrection of Christ, as they shared the gospel and spread the gospel in, in the Great Commission, knowing that all things would be used by God to accomplish his purposes. Nothing excluded from that promise. Not Nero, not jails, not mobs, not oceans. Nothing. In Romans 8, verse 31 through 39, we read the following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, us up, gave, him, us, uh, gave up, him up sorry, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That means praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can God say this? Is it because he looked into the future and he saw nothing will separate us from his love? No, it's because all things, angels, demons, rulers, all things, height, depth, all things, everything in all creation is under his perfect sovereignty. That's how he can make the promises in Romans 8. Because the Lord owns all things that he has made and he has made all things. And the Lord will make use of all these things for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, his queen, the church. And so, as we review the year behind us, all of the events of the last year fall into this truth. And so it will be with the year before us. Next year might be the most consequential year of your life. It might even be the most consequential year of Canada's history. Something may happen that everyone will say after that is the most important thing that has ever happened. Maybe the economy will crash. Maybe we will slip into a world war that we never expected. Maybe you will be diagnosed with cancer. Maybe you will get married. Maybe the Lord will give you a child. Maybe you will lose a child. Maybe you will finally get that dream job. Dear Christian, all things will work together for the good of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
because he owns all things and does not ask permission to use them. The Lord is sovereign and the Lord loves me. That is the twin sweet truths that the, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ gets to comfort themselves with every year and every day. Second point is this, a white war horse or a peaceful, humble donkey? A white war horse or a peaceful, humble donkey? The choice of his mount was a very careful one. It is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Dear friends, the Old Testament had prophesied the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the coming of the King of glory, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Son of David. Coming with power and judgment against his enemies, against sinners, against the rebels of Israel, and against the enemies of Israel. Against sinners. And many people in Israel said, yes, that is true. He has come to destroy sinners. And that is not us, because we are not sinners. And Jesus says, yes, you too. You also are a sinner. And if the Lord Jesus had come on that white war horse that he had been prophesied to come on first, then there would be no one in Jerusalem rejoicing. No one outside of Jerusalem rejoicing. No one in Canada or Norway or Africa, or Antarctica, no one rejoicing, because we are all sinners. Jesus said he came to save sinners. He said a physician comes only for the sick. And that donkey was a sign of a humble and gentle peace toward the people who know that they are guilty and who need the Lord's salvation. Not to save them only from other people's sins, but to be saved from their own sins. And Christ promises that for repentant believers, he comes in peace. For repentant believers, he comes in peace. Not people who have, cl- have, have cleaned themselves up enough. No. But people who recognize their guilt, they change their mind about sin and they change their, their minds are changed about sin and about rebellion and about God and they trust in Christ alone to reconcile them to God. He came to humble the exalted and to exalt the humble. And here what is shown to be exalted is somebody who says, one, I am not sinful. That is a person that Christ comes against. A person who says, I am not sinful. And second, a person who says, I am sinful, and God doesn't care, and he shouldn't care. I have no need to change, and I demand that God change his mind about my sin and actions. These are examples of what it would look like to be exalted. Now, Jesus was promised to come in both ways, on the donkey, Zechariah and I, but also in power and glory and in wrath and vengeance. The first glimpse of this we get to see in Genesis 49. This is a prophecy, the first prophecy that would say the Messiah is coming from the tribe of Judah. This is Israel's prophecy for the tribe of Judah, the tribe that Jesus was born into. Genesis 49, verse 10 says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His teeth are darker than wine, and his, his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk." You notice here that wine is used as a metaphor for blood. The blood that would splatter on the clothes of a king who has come to destroy his enemies. 
We can see Revelation 19 picks this up as well. Revelation 19, verse 11. Also speaking about the Lord Jesus. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. One sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in, the right, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, the Lord, of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. You see here a different picture of the Lord Jesus coming, riding on a different type of mount. You have quite a different scene, don't you? Not of peace, but a sword. And the sword is coming out of his mouth in this picture, isn't it? Conquering enemies, conquering them with the word of the gospel. Have we not seen that this is true, where the gospel has gone forth nation to nation and conquered people? People who have been slain, which means they have died to self, died to sin, and they have been made new in Christ by believing in Christ and receiving his spirit. But notice what happens to the rest of the earth, those who are not slain by the gospel. What will be left is a sea of death. Those who resist him, those who reject him, those who hate him, those who deny him, those who choose their own religion, who deny they they need him, who reject his gospel offer for forgiveness and repentance, they will not find him to be a gentle, humble king, but a fierce and vengeful enemy. But here at Christ's first coming, he comes as a ruler on the colt, the foal of a donkey, gentle and lowly. This is the offer, dear friends. It may be true that no one but you knows you are not a Christian. But the Lord also knows. This is the offer. This is how he is offered to you by God. For what wrath he would bring to you as an enemy when he comes on a white war horse, he took on himself on the cross instead of you. He came to Jerusalem to offer his life for enemies not to take the lives of enemies. That was his conquering. That is the exact conquering that you need, conquering death and sin. He humbled himself all the way down to your place, bearing wrath for you, so that when he does come to bring wrath and judgment, there will be none for you. Those who come to him for grace find him to be gentle, and humble and lowly, which is signified by his choice of a donkey. So dear friend, your choice, your your guilt is known to God and it is also known to you. So when Christ comes as a conqueror, as a judge, as a king, your guilt will condemn you and you will not find gentleness and peace but weeping and gnashing of teeth and terror for you know your sin and you Know that he has the right to judge you. Like the rest of mankind, you have exalted yourself to the place of God. You have arrogantly acted as though you can determine what is right and wrong rather than submitting to the creator's laws. You failed to worship God. You failed to love your neighbor as God commands. You failed to be sexually pure. You failed to honor your parents. 
You failed to use your authority over your, parent, over your children honorably. You have failed to speak only the truth. You have failed to speak up against injustice. You have failed to love people more than money. And you have failed to thank and praise God for all that you have. That is true for every single person in this room. But to a people who have sinned against all these commands, Christ is now offered to you, just like he was offered to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. He is offered to you, though he should be offered to you as a white warhorse riding king. He is now offered to you as a humble king riding on a donkey, gentle and lowly. This doesn't mean he accepts rebellion, but he offers forgiveness for it. And he offers freedom and transformation for it. And he helps and he promises to help you reject rebellion. That is what he came into Jerusalem that week to do to spill his own blood for your sins, to die in your place, to face judgment for you, and then to rise from the dead to give you eternal life and to give you right now new life. And this is a gift that is not earned. It is received by humble faith, by trusting in him, by resting in him, by recognizing you need nothing less than that and nothing more than that and trusting that Christ will give it. So dear Christian, what does this picture of Christ on the donkey tell you? It tells you that you can repent of sin. There's no need to deny it or justify it. You don't have to come to God armed with reasons why your sins were okay. Try to hide them with fig leaves. You don't need to do that. Come to him with your sin. Recognize it. Admit it. And you will find him gentle. Acknowledge your need. Not only for physical strength, but also your need for righteousness. You don't need to fear him as you call on him, expressing a love or a desire for godliness and holiness. You don't need to fear him when you recognize that you have a lack of love for him. You will find him as a king on that humble donkey. Are you crushed by the sin of others? Come to him. He comforts you by promising to be with you and to help you. And he also comforts you by promising to punish their sin when he returns. Are you crushed by the curse of the fallen world? Come to him. The ones who will come to him will find him humble. And the ones who refuse to will find him on a white war horse who brings destruction for them. So I urge you, repent now. The third point is this, the humble delight of being under the reign of Christ. The humble delight of being under the reign of Christ. That donkey's owner, the donkey, they were used by Christ without their knowledge or consent. But the crowd that gathered was a picture, it was a foreshadow of willingly and happily placing themselves under Christ. The disciples placed their coats under Christ as a saddle on the donkey. The crowds placed their coats under the donkey as a royal road, like a red carpet. And then running out of coats, they grabbed leaves from the field, palm branches to place them under him. And they cried out and rejoiced in him as king, placing themselves under his crown. Dear friends, our joy is not found in being equal to God, not being his peers, not in ruling ourselves, not in being a God. True joy cannot be found that way. That was the lie which Satan used to bring the whole world into sin. That there was greater joy in being equal to God than there would be in being under him. Notice their cries. Hosanna, save us. They're saying we cannot save ourselves. We need someone else to hide ourselves in. 
They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were blessing him. They were praising him. They were enjoying him. Their joy was in who he was, in yes, what he would do for them, but also in him. Because whatever he does is an expression of who he is. They rejoiced in the coming kingdom of their father, David. They were placing themselves under him with their voices. Your friends, true delight is in what God has actually promised and in who God actually is. We don't know what this crowd did after. Was it the same people who cried out for Christ's death a few days later? It might have been. It might also not have been. Certainly not all of them. Some of the people who were crying out Hosanna did not add their voices to the crowd that cried to crucify him. But either way, their praise was appropriate and a foreshadow of the praises of the redeemed when Christ returns and even before he does. People who found joy in being under the lordship of Christ, hoping in his reign and delighting in what scripture says about him. Promises that they are not Lord. I am not my own Lord. I am not my own savior. I am not my own king. But that the one who rightly comes on a war horse first came on a humble donkey to help people helpless like me to come into his kingdom. One that he alone reigns and that I rejoice that he is king because I know nothing greater than to belong to someone who has such a reign. There is a humble delight of being under the reign of Christ. Our last point is this, and it is, an, it is an odd point that Mark leaves off on. The Lord's wrath is not like ours. The Lord's wrath is not like ours. Mark tells us that the Lord Jesus went into the temple after this. You can read this in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Malachi 3 tells us about the coming Messiah, that he will walk into the temple, he will inspect it. And that day will come like a thief. And the people will not be prepared. And that he will bring judgment on those who have rebelled against God. And so Jesus... Finally, his coronation ceremony had come. The people had for three years been trying to make him king by force, and he refused. The first time he allowed them to do that was when he went into Jerusalem in order to offer his life. And then he goes into the temple. And you would expect him, based on the prophecies, to immediately destroy the place and set it on fire. But after going into that temple and inspecting it, he goes to Bethany. Did he like what he saw? No, we'll see that next week. He did not like what he saw. Did he have authority to respond in anger and judge? Yes, he did. We'll see that next week as well. Dear friends, the Lord's wrath is not like ours. The Lord has wrath. The Bible's very clear. But the Lord's wrath is not like ours. God's wrath is always justified. Yours is not. God's wrath is always based on, the, on true justice. Mine is not. God always has the right to judge, and his wrath is always in terms of his rightness as judge, not vigilante justice. He's always the king. He's always the judge. That is not true of us. But he's also not reactionary. One of the first things you're going to learn about when you study the doctrine of who God is, the church has confessed that God has no passions. Well, doesn't that mean he doesn't love things? He's not angry? No, that's not what it means. It means that these things don't move him or control him. Seeing somebody do something doesn't make him respond the way it would. For us, we see something, it moves us to emotions, and our emotions drive us to do things. That is not God. He's not controlled or forced or manipulated or blown by the wind of other people's actions, which is true for us. 
He's not like us in that way. The Bible says he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. His love is not slow, but his anger is. So dear non-believer, Christ rose from the dead. He is therefore your Lord. Everyone's Lord. Whether you recognize it or not. And he, has, he is the one whom you have sinned against. And he does have wrath. But his wrath is not like the wrath of the people that you have crossed. He's not moved by anger. And so that when the anger subsides, he will just let it go. Because if he gets a nice sleep or drinks his coffee in the morning. And if he delays, it doesn't mean he has forgotten about it. He has been so patient to me and to you. But do not mistake his patience for approval. You must accept his patience for what it actually is. It is a loving gesture. Offering himself first as a donkey riding king. Who takes his wrath instead of you. But he will come certainly as a king on a war horse. To deliver that wrath. So take advantage of that delay Today is the day of salvation, says the scripture, so long as it is still called today. So turn to Christ. Be saved into his kingdom, under his lordship. Receive the forgiveness of sins and be led away from sin by simply trusting in him. Dear believer, we need to be comforted by God's patient anger, but also be taught by it. First, let's be comforted The Lord does not say that vengeance is wrong. He says vengeance is mine. So do not take it upon yourself when people have sinned against you. Do not let that rage build up within you and then you explode at them. Do not do that. The Lord's vengeance is the Lord's vengeance. And he will satisfy that. Either... By that person repenting and that sin being placed on the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus being punished. Or one day that person being punished in hell. And also we are to be taught by God's patient anger. Do not be driven by anger. Do not be controlled by anger. Be angry but do not sin. Do not let it lead to actions that would be sinful. Do not do something and say, well, I was angry and the Lord said I should be angry and therefore I did this thing that the Lord said I shouldn't do. Do not embrace vigilante justice. Let justice and God's glory be what concerns you. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger must be temporary. It must drive you to deliver that justice, that desire and call for justice to the appropriate authority, which is always God, and it might be the police. But you do not be controlled by it. Anger is not a place to live or a treasure. Dear friends, the Lord has come. He came humble and lowly, though every single bit a king. First, to conquer the law's ability to condemn God's people. First, conquering Satan's claim over Christ's people. First, conquering sin's power over God's people. He did not at all deny his reign. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. To establish a kingdom of perfect peace and holiness for his people. And he is currently reigning over all things to accomplish his glorious purpose. So we may not despair. Even when his kingdom looks lowly and it looks kind of like a king riding on a donkey, he is still every bit as royal. And invincible. Though his, he, has, he has anger, he has been so patient. And he will be good to those who humbly come before him. He will raise them up. He will exalt them. He will satisfy them with his love. 
we can conclude with Charles Wesley's hymn, rejoicing in the reign of Christ, delighting in his reign, and delighting that Christ is king. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Your Lord and king adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice, again I say, rejoice. Jesus the Savior reigns. The God of truth and love, when he has purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice. Again I say rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to Christ Jesus given. So lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Jesus reigns and he will return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that rather than sending Christ first to come on that horse to bring justice and judgment and punishment for sinners, that you first sent him to come on a donkey, to come to make peace with people who had sinned so greatly against him. And that includes us. Father, I pray that we would, be, we would learn much from this, these events. I pray that we would delight and find Christ to be humble and gentle. And so we will come to him with our needs, including our need for forgiveness and new hearts. We pray that we would take after him as well. We pray that we would not be overcome with wrath or anger but we would be satisfied in your promise that one day every sin will be punished and every injustice be laid low. Father, we rejoice that Christ is king right now, that he didn't wait to become king, that he did not wait to be sovereign over all things, but that he currently is, and that he is using even things that don't want to be submissive to him. They don't want to be used for his purposes. We rejoice that everything is in his sovereign hand to accomplish it, his purposes and promise to us. Lord, I pray that you would keep us and that our hope would be in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and King of heaven and earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand together.